up everybody welcome back to secrets of a serial killer i'm your host nick adams and so today we're going to be talking about Derek todd lee and sean vince gillis so i'm gonna start off with Derek real quick so let's get right into it shall we so Derek todd lee was born november 5th 1968 in san francisville i don't know who came up with that name kind of dumb which is 30 miles away from baton rouge louisiana which you know if y'all listen to NBA Youngboy or Boosie Badass, you probably know a little bit about Baton Rouge. The whole Lee family lived in mobile homes on Blackmore Road, which is also called Lee's Quarters. He spent most of his time outside with other members of his family, playing basketball and going fishing. But something changed inside of him, and his female cousins actually noticed it first. It felt like someone was watching them undress from the dark. Rumors started to spread that nine-year-old Derek was peeping on his own cousins. Every night he stood outside, still as a statue, and would stare. They thought, maybe he's just sexually curious. His cousins, nor others in his family, didn't really make a fuss about it at all. November 8, 1981, three days after his 13th birthday, the police actually arrested him for stealing from a local candy store. You want some candy, boy? Mmm. I also got popsicles in my cellar. Oh my goodness. This was his first offense, so he got probation. He liked peeping on his cousins, but burglary was a whole different thrill. At the age of 16, he developed a temper. Must be nice, I developed mine a lot earlier than that. In 1984, he attacked another boy with a knife, and he was swinging it like he was trying to kill the boy. But the second-degree murder charge was actually dropped. He was slowly progressing from a peeping tom, thief, burglarer, to attempted murderer. So 17-year-old Derek went around the neighborhood peeping into homes. He dropped out of school, and he saw homework and class as a huge distraction. So he had more time to watch his cousins undress from the darkness. Wow, that's just such a good reason to leave school. (laughs) But eventually it wasn't doing anything for him, so he started wandering outside of Lee's quarters to see who else was out there for him. He perfected his method. Mostly, he would see a girl walk into school or walk into a store, and then he would follow her and find where she lived, which was not hard to find because Francisville is tiny, and then he would settle behind a bush or a tree and watch through the open window. He would watch a woman for weeks at a time, probably hours on end as well. He thought peeping didn't hurt anyone, but not like his family. These girls would actually complain about some boy staring at them through their windows. These families would actually go as far as calling the cops. So in 1986, a woman noticed 18-year-old Derek staring at her through the bedroom window. She saw her brother, no, she told her brother, and he called the police. And they swiftly tracked Derek down. All they did was let him off with a warning. In the eyes of law enforcement, if no one was hurt, then the crime couldn't be that terrible. Right? No. In 1987, he found a job as a pipe fitter in a town nearby called Zachary. He also fell in love with Jackie Sims. She was kind, sweet, and good to Derek. But in 1988, they got married, and in 1992, they had a son and daughter together. Seems like Derek's life was so on track and going well for him. But Derek went out all the time, leaving Jackie alone with the two kids. She never questioned him or asked where he was going. It was just easier that way. When he was home, mm, it wasn't good at all. His anger was bad. He was abusive towards Jackie, not only verbally, but physically as well. 
On one occasion, she actually filed a restraining order against her husband, but she didn't maintain it long, but a few months. And then it was just not really nothing after that, honestly. When he went out, he could do whatever he wanted. Jackie enjoyed the long periods of time alone and away from him. Some nights he would meet up with his cousins at a local bar. Other nights he would go back to being a peeking Tom. <laughs> he did have an affair with a woman named Cassandra, and she would meet up with him and his cousins at the bar for drinks. He thought he had a seductive control over all the women he came across. Oh, he's God's gift to women, y'all! Derek eventually stumbled across Zachary, which is a small town for single mothers or small families that are just in nice suburban area. Some actually think that Derek killed 41-year-old Connie Lynn Warner and that she was actually his first murder, but it was never proven. She had dark eyes, dark hair, and fair skin. For y'all that don't know what that means, she is a white girl that's brunette with brown eyes. You're welcome. She was a single mother living with her daughter, Tracy. We have no idea how old Tracy is, but she's probably maybe late teens, early 20s, by the way she talks about her daughter. They lived there for four years without any issues, and then Derek one day spotted her. The summer of 1992, Connie noticed someone looking through the windows. When she called the police, she didn't get a good look at the man, so nothing was ever done. Man, she would have got a good look and knew. But obviously, she wasn't going to know Derek regardless, but... I mean, the police would have. They were easily able to swiftly... Oh, God. They were able to swiftly pick him up the first time, so I don't think it would have been that hard. After the report, she didn't see the man again, and nothing was ever done about it. So the weekend of August 22nd, Tracy left to spend a few days with her boyfriend, so Connie was all alone. So she's probably like early 20s, I guess. We have no idea what happened during this time, but Derek's DNA wasn't at the scene, and the case was never solved. The stranger didn't come in by force. He pretty much knocked on the door, and I guess when Connie answered, he forced his way in, and then he would drag her by her hair from room to room. There was blood in the bedroom, the kitchen, all the way to the garage. He threw her onto her car, and then into the back seat. Inside the car, she vomited from the blunt force trauma that she had, and he would take her out of the car, and then he would drag her back to his car, and disappear into the night. He would take her to a secluded area, most likely killed her there, dumped her body off, and went about his day. So 48 hours later, Tracy returned home from her trip. That was August 24th at 9 p.m. She found it empty. Alarmed, she called her grandfather who came over. When they saw the blood and the struggle, they called the police. Police found more. Connie's bed was pushed to one side of the room, and the sheets were tangled in the middle. On the carpet, they found her glasses and underwear stained with blood. Due to the vomit in the car, they believed that she was still alive when taken. Tracy was so glued to the phone. For the next few days, she was hoping to hear some good news. On August 26, four days after Connie's disappearance, the investigation came to a halt. Hurricane Andrew hit Zachary, which was a Category 5 hurricane, which was 150 miles per hour winds, leaving destruction behind. It washed away any evidence outside of Connie's home, and on September 2, 1992, a truck driver found Connie by Capitol Lake near Baton Rouge. Speculations think that Derek beat her until she was dead, and they think that she died from a skull fracture, and her body was decomposing very quickly in the rain. The storm washed away any evidence that was on her, no DNA, fingerprints, or footprints around at all. Tracy and the family, it was the worst fucking news possible for them.
I feel bad for them, honestly. We would never know for sure if it was Derek that killed her. In a way, I think Derek did. Because going into this next one, it, it you know, just reading and doing the research, I think Derek did kill her. The further we get into the story, you're probably going to be like, yeah, Derek did kill her. There's just, just a fucking high chance he did. So from 1992 to 1998, he was arrested for peeping Tom charges. He got charges for different things. Derek was having trouble holding a job. His marriage and his relationship with his girlfriend was not doing well at all. So he decided that he was going to prowl the town of Zachary. And he spotted 28-year-old Randy Melbourne. M-E-B-R-U-E-R. I'm not good with these names, man. I'm going to be honest. Who happened to live down the street from Connie. Mmm. She happened to look a lot like Connie. Mmm. White, brown hair, and brown eyes. Mmm. He knew she was the one. He found out that she lived and then found out that she also lived alone. So not only he found her home, but found that she lived alone as well. He has been watching her for a while now, and on April 18th, he was having a bad night, and his girlfriend and him were in a fight. They were supposed to have a night out at the bar when it was cut short. She was tired of him flirting with other women, and she told him as well. So at 10.30 p.m. after the argument, she was mad and she went home, leaving Derek alone with his anger. So he drove to another bar, but it didn't calm him down at all. In his mind, she had no reason to be angry with him. He already had a wife at home who made it hard for him. The urge to want to kill kicked in. He finished his beer, put the money on the counter, and left. He drove out to Zachary towards Randy's street. Hmm. Sat up at a familiar spot outside her window and waited. He sat there for hours. He watched her watching a movie, then watched her put her son to bed, throw the lottery ticket because she didn't win, and then she went to bed. No one heard Derek open the door and sneak inside. Not sure what happened, but he beat her badly, bloodied the sheets, bloodied the headboard, and blood in the hallway. He hit her so hard, both of her contacts came out. He took her out of the house and into a remote area. He killed her. Not sure how he killed her, but he did, and he fled the scene. The rest of the night, nobody heard a thing. The morning, the neighbors spotted three-year-old Michael wandering around the front yard alone. Kathy walked up to Michael and asked, Uh, where's your mother? He looked up at her and said, she is gone. She said, I'll help you find her, and led him back into the house, through the open kitchen door. She figured out that Randy wasn't there, but noticed a few red spots on the floor. She got worried while she was holding Michael's hand walking through the house, so she called out for Randy, but there was no response. When she saw more blood, she scooped up Michael and took him to her own house. She told her husband, something is terribly wrong. So they called the police. Kathy only saw a glimpse of the carnage. The police saw more and more of it. The sheets had tons of blood on them and that they found the contact lenses sitting in a dry pool of blood. They examined the blood and found pieces of Randy's hair. Looked like she had been dragged out of the house. The attack was so brutal it was even alarming to the police. There was also a few unidentified body fluids, but there was no body or forced entry. But what made the police not think twice about a repeated fender or maybe this might be a serial killer? Nah, it's Randy's ex-husband. He's acting really suspicious. Michael Sr. didn't have a good relationship with Randy at all. And three days after her death, he tried to cash in on her life insurance. And they saw this as a clear reason to suspect him. They went through his phone calls, everything, looking for evidence they could use against him. But the police hit a dead end. I bet Sean Gillis likes that joke. Y'all find out later. 
Derek killed one woman in Zachary already and may be responsible for another. Two detectives, David McDavid, stupid ass name, and Danny Nixon, they believe that Derek was responsible for the murders. There you go, you got your guy. Go get him. With the record of anger and peeping Tom charges, he could easily be the suspect. Look, you guys already got him. Go get the man. But they had no proof. Damn. Derek had no idea that they were keeping an eye on him. But he went back to his hometown of Francisville. Still, stupid name. He spotted 36-year-old Colette Walker. So on June 1st of 1999, Derek approached Colette after she pulled up to her apartment. He decided to block her path as she was walking towards it, and he came on very strong. He asked a lot of questions like, Do you have a boyfriend? Can you give me a ride sometime? Hey, you want to go out and get some drinks? She turned him down and asked him to get out of the way, and he stepped back and let her pass. Two days later, he was watching her park her car. Same thing he did two days earlier, but this time he didn't approach her. So she walked to her apartment, opened the door, and he walked in right behind her, and he swiftly closed the door. She was staring at him, stunned at how quickly he appeared. He didn't attack her right away. He made himself at home. He picked up the picture frame and asked her, Is this your daughter? She didn't answer, so he asked her a different question. He asked, Do you want to go on a date with me? She stood there in silence. He started walking around her apartment as if he owned it, picking up items, putting them down, turning off lamps. She followed him, and she turned the lights back on and told him to get lost. I'm not going on a date with you. He wasn't backing down. He simply asked her, why not? She tried to be patient with Derek and keep him calm. Uh, you're a stranger and I don't trust you. She even reasoned why he could be maybe some crazed killer. His response was, if that was the case, I'd rape you right now and no one would know. Colette told him to leave. Derek wrote his name on a piece of paper and walked out of the apartment. A few days later, she reported him to the police. I don't know why you waited a few days later. That made no sense. Another peeping charge and two years of supervised probation. How do you get a peeping charge? More like, that's a trespassing charge. Like, how is that a peeping? He wasn't peeping. Okay, yeah, I could see him peeping, but I see it more as like stalking and a trespassing charge. But whatever. Derek was actually a predator stalker. If you don't know what that is, look up the definition. February 2000. His girlfriend, Cassandra, was actually meeting Derek at the bar for drinks. Once she parked, he opened the door and beat her with his bare hands. The bar owner saw the attack and called the police. He was charged with assault and a year behind bars. Because, you know, he didn't get the kill with Colette, so he ended up taking it out on his own girlfriend. Law enforcement made a huge error, though. You're supposed to put the DNA into the database, right, for every inmate that comes in. But DNA testing was so expensive for that moment. And for the town like Francisville, they're really small and they ain't got money like that. So the law wasn't enforced there. So his DNA wasn't logged into the database, but he didn't know that. He kept his head down and served out his sentence. It took him some time to get back to civilized life. He decided not to go back to Francisville or go visit Colette. Well, 34 miles away was LSU. So in September of 2001, all the students were roaming the streets. Derek joined, looking for someone new. He found his way to Stanford Avenue. All bunch of women were around, and one of them was Gina Wilson Green. He found out where she lived and watched her through the window. She had no clue he was there. On September 23rd, he tried to go inside by grabbing the doorknob and turning it. And the moment he opened, 
He backed up. Alarm went off. He ran back into the darkness and stood there very still. Gina wandered into the house, looking for signs of an intruder. You know, just walking around your house like, who's a mild bitch? <laughs> well, she found nothing, so she turned off the lights and went back to bed. Hell no, I would not go back to bed at all. He waited a few more hours before trying again. He tried again, but with more of a direct approach. He most likely knocked on the door and attacked Gina when she answered. He beat her with his fists and tore her clothes. He chased her to the bedroom and sexually assaulted her, then strangled her to death. He put a sheet over her body and walked out the back door. One of Gina's co-workers found her body and called the police. They wandered through the house looking for clues to explain what happened. He decided to lay low for a few months so that the police wouldn't catch up to him. The two detectives followed the new killing with a grim conviction. They still think that Derek was responsible for the two murders in their town. They were trying to get evidence to tie him to the third one as well. It was close to where Derek worked, but they couldn't really do anything with that information. All they could do is just sit back and wait. The Baton Rouge police, they didn't share their suspicions. They think Gina was a standalone crime. As the 2002 began, they weren't suspicious of Derek at all. Stanford Avenue was a hot spot right now, so Derek found a new job that was outside of Baton Rouge, and the job helped his stability. The salary helped him support himself, his family, and even his girlfriend. He drove down I-1, which was just marshlands and birds, but there was a trailer park off to the side of the highway. It was a little place called Addis. That's where he spotted 21-year-old Gerilyn DeSoto. Stupid name. Stalking from a distance, moving in closer over time, watching from the window, getting familiar with the evening routine. That's not creepy at all. So on January 11, 2002, his job laid him off. It hit him hard, and his stress levels were going through the roof. He picked up his final paycheck and then drove fiercely down the highway. It was in the middle of the day, but he couldn't wait until nightfall. It's kind of ballsy of you. It shows you that he was getting really confident in himself and his killings. When he got there, he pulled off and parked. He went right up to the front door and knocked. She answered and he asked if he could borrow her phone so he could make a call. She let him in and happily to help him. He didn't seem dangerous to her at all. Bad move. And the fact is, like, he's knocking on these people's doors and nobody's fucking seeing him. Or hearing any noise, especially in a trailer park. That makes no sense, but okay. So, she handed him the phone, and with one movement, he hit her with it. She fell back stunned and ran to the bedroom. Her husband kept the shotgun there, and hopefully it was loaded. When she got to the back of the bedroom, there was no ammo. Wow. That's not good at all. He caught up with her, and he ripped the weapon right out of her hands, and he tossed it aside while she clawed at him, fighting for her life. She escaped and ran to the back door, but Derek pulled out a knife and stabbed her seven times. He dragged the knife across her throat, and he put the knife back up and left her right on the floor, and he left the same way he came in, through the front door. He didn't even bother closing it. Darren, her husband, found her body and called 911. Darren became a person of interest, but he had an alibi. Months of digging, and they had to accept that they had the wrong man. He carried on with his life and landed another job, talking about Derek, but then he got fired again. <laughs> Some time has passed, so he paid at Stanford Avenue another visit, and he noticed a different woman who lived down the street from Gina. He had his sights on 22-year-old Charlotte Marie Pace. She was an LSU graduate. He never forgot about her. 
She was on high alert after hearing about Gina, who lived three doors down from her. He watched her outside of her apartment for a long time. He even knew when she moved out which street she moved on to, which was a townhouse on Swallow Avenue. She never noticed him. So on May 31, 2002, he drove to the street in the middle of the day. He went up to Charlotte's front door and knocked. When she answered, he asked if he could use her phone. She handed it to him, and he struck her on the head with it. As she stumbled back, he entered, raising his hand for another strike. She got up and ran to the back door. He followed by pulling out a flathead screwdriver. He called up and started slashing her with the tool. He chased her into the bedroom while he not only raped her there, but continued to stab her. She died. She was stabbed 83 times. I wonder why she wasn't able to get out the back door. Like, did she open it and then, like, he kick it or something and it kicked it closed? I have no idea. But it seems like everybody's making the mistake of running to the bedroom. Like, the only person who didn't make that mistake was the lady with the shotgun in the bedroom. But for some reason, I don't know why she didn't close the door. That's what I was just thinking about. Like, when she was going in there to get the shotgun, why didn't she just close the door and lock it? Or at least close the door for a couple seconds. I don't know. I wasn't there and I don't know how her house is set up. So he left to the front door. Her roommate came home and found her a few hours later. She called the police and they took whatever evidence they could find, blood, clothing, and semen sample. LSU was in shock and fear. Two victims in five months that once used to live on the same road? Hell yeah, I'd be scared too. The analysis found that the blood from each crime scene was a match. <gasps> We're getting somewhere. But since Francisville dropped the ball and made that mistake when they arrested him, his name didn't show up. If they would have actually swabbed him and put his name in a database instead of worrying about how expensive it was, they would literally would have caught their guy right now. God, stupid, man. Stupid. So on July of 2002, he made his sights on a new target, Pamela Killamore, who was 44 years old. She was actually older than his last few victims, but she fit the description of that woman that he liked. Watching from her window, he realized that it's go time. So July 12th, 2002, he watched her drive up to her building and got out and went into her apartment. He approached the back door of her unit and he couldn't believe his luck. The keys were still in the door. He walked in looking around for her and Derek heard bath water and he went towards it and he opened the door and he stared down at her in the tub. He pulled her out of the tub and struck her with his fist. Dragging her, she scratched and fought back while drawing blood on his arms. He hits... And he didn't just keep, I mean, he just kept hitting her until she was like losing consciousness. And he picked her up and he put her in the passenger seat of his truck and he drove an hour before getting off an exit and going under a bridge. He dragged her out, raped her, slit her throat, and she died there. So he covered up with leaves and then drove away. So July 16, 2002, just four days later, the police found her taking blood samples from her house, sending them for forensic testing. The blood matched the same blood from Derek's last two victims. They realized that they had a serial killer on their hands, and they nicknamed him the Baton Rouge Serial Killer. Everyone was in a panic. Killing was random. No woman was safe. Derek didn't even know who he was even going to kill next. <laughs> in August, they formed a task force to investigate the slayings, and the two detectives from Zachary joined, and they voiced their opinion. They said that it was Derek Todd Lee. The other police weren't having it, and they were like, yeah, he has a history of domestic violence and peeping, but it's not for him to be, you know, a killer. It has to be a white man. So they got an FBI profiler, and it came back a strong, impulsive male 
from the age of 25 to 35, but it didn't specify the race, so they continued to look for a white man. They probably believed that serial killers only kill in their own race as well. Because, yes, 95% of serial killers are white, and they do kill within their own race, like Ted Bundy did, John Wayne Gacy, um, many, many more, right? But that's not always the case. So, over the years, they asked 1,000 men to send in DNA samples. None were a match. So they released a warning to the women to be careful. Yeah, like that's going to help anything. Derek ended up in Lafayette, which is 55 miles away. I might be saying that not wrong. So we have Tarnisha Cologne. I don't know how to say her name. So on November 21st, 2002, she was sitting outside in the cemetery at her mother's grave outside of Lafayette. He probably spoke to her and then snapped somehow and tossed her into his truck. He pulled up on a street with abandoned buildings and woods, which is a perfect spot for him. He got out and drug her into the woods, and he started beating and sexually assaulting her. Then he killed her. Three days later, a hunter that was walking through found her. The police were confused. They thought serial killers don't kill outside of their own race. This time was different. Actually, he's been killing outside of his own race. This is the first time he's actually killed within his own race. So February 25th, the task force wanted to try a new tech that was called racial profiling. So they sent in a sample of the blood to Florida to get examined. So waiting for the results, Derek attacked again. He assaulted and raped a LSU employee, Carrie Lynn Yonder, then killed her underneath the same bridge where he left Pamela from the previous summer. A few days later, when they found the locals looking at the task force for answers, like, hey, dumbasses, like, we're scared. What are you going to do? Can you save us? But the task force was like, I don't know, nothing came up. So March 7th, the task force heard back from the lab, 85% African American and 15% Native American. The Zachary detectives, they've been waiting for this moment. They gathered evidence as much as they can find against Derek. This one guy, he actually studied his file for two months and found a pattern. We're talking about Nixon, one of the detectives. The killings happened around when he got fired or had financial troubles. Oh, that was smart of him to figure that pattern out. Or not at home, so he had no alibis at all. So on May 5th, 2003, Danny got permission, which is Danny Nixon, to take a DNA sample from Derek. Derek sat calmly as they swabbed. He thanked them for their time and watched them leave. Nixon ran off quickly, but Derek wasn't waiting around for the results. Once they left, he told his wife they need to leave before the police come back because they were after him. She believed he was innocent, so they came up with the plan. She takes the kids to her aunt's house in Detroit while he flees to Atlanta. Like Detroit's supposed to be safe at all. They save and then save up enough money and then he'll join her. Time was on their side, though, because DNA tests, it took weeks, man. It took weeks. I don't know about now. It probably won't take as long, but it took weeks. The day after the swab, he was gone. He found a low-paying job at Atlanta Hotel, and on May 25th, the results came back in. His DNA was a match, so two officers went to his house to arrest him, but he was already gone. They shared their information with the public and even hit national television. Jackie watched in horror as her husband's face and name crossed the TV. His years of late-night disappearances made sense now. A day after that, 
She spoke to the police. They moved quickly. They showed his picture to anyone and everyone in the area. And at 9 p.m. the same day, they got an anonymous tip. He was in the parking lot at a tire shop. They had him surrounded and he didn't even resist. He was silent. They tried to interrogate him, but he wasn't having it. He was remorseful, and when they asked him why he was remorseful and why he wanted to be put to death, he never admitted what he was sorry about. While in jail, more murders were linked due to his DNA. He went to trial for Charlotte Pace and DeSoto, and he was found guilty, and he got life in prison. But due to the Charlotte killing, he got the lethal injection. But, sadly, he never got the lethal injection. Because of January 21st, 2004, he died of heart disease in prison at the hospital at the age of 47. So, yeah, he pretty much died anyways, because that's the problem with death row, is that you might be on death row for many, many years before they kill you. So pretty much death row is kind of like life in prison. The only difference is, you know, they're going to eventually kill you, but life in prison, you're just eventually just going to die yourself. So it's pretty much kind of the same thing. It's not like back in like the 1800s or the early 1900s or whatever, where they're just like, oh, we will kill you immediately right now. Like, we won't even think twice about it. We will hang you in front of everybody. But times have really changed since then. So enough about that. Let's get into our next killer, shall we? Sean Vince Gillis. So Sean was born June 24th, 1962. A year later, Sean was sleeping in his crib when his dad came in yelling and willing a gun in his hand. For some reason, he was mad at Sean's mom, Yvonne. When he didn't feel like he was getting the point across, he jammed the gun into Sean's temple. She sprinted to the doorway, wide-eyed in terror. He threatened to shoot her and the boy as well. Wow, what a great dad. She rushed him and wrestled the gun out of his hand, and thankfully it didn't go off. She grabbed the gun, raced to the bathroom, locked herself in put the gun in her pocket, and climbed out the window. She went to a neighbor's house to call Norman's father. But when she left, her son behind with his dad. Which wasn't a good idea. Not sure what happened to Sean during that period of time, but it probably wasn't good. Norman Sr. came over and he took his son out of the house and let Yvonne back in. She grabbed Sean and promised him everything was going to be alright. Norman didn't come back. Yvonne raised the kid on her own, relying on her job. It was a good job, but not a great job. Money was tight, and Norman couldn't always pay child support. Sometimes she would take him to work and show him around, or at home, she'd be reading him some of her classic literature. When Sean was 10, his mom bought a house on Tree Line Bergen Avenue. She did everything for the boy. She never dated or married as Sean was growing up, and she called him the Blue-Eyed Angel. They only had each other, you know, Yvonne was the only woman in Sean's life, and Sean was the only man that was in Yvonne's life. His teachers thought he was average, but his mom thought he was a genius. Their relationship almost kind of felt like it was codependent. He eventually got himself two friends, John Green and John Rosses. One neighbor recalled Sean as creepy, but not sure why, but her daughter would avoid him at all costs. He got addicted to watching Star Trek, and he loved the character Mr. Spock. Ugh, I'm a Star Wars guy. He played chess just like the character, and he got good enough to even teach his friends. Sean would walk to school, or walk around school, with a Star Trek briefcase. A psychologist thinks that he suffers from Asperger's disorder, but I'm not going to go into the psychology of that, because I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, so yeah, I'm not qualified for that. But it's also not an official diagnosis. So one night, he was laying in bed staring up at the ceiling, and his thoughts were racing. He wanted a girlfriend, but he couldn't understand why he couldn't get one. Ha! 
You and me both, buddy. <laughs> I'm definitely on that same boat with you. He was just staring at the ceiling. His mother was Catholic, so masturbating, watching pornography were more sinful. So he got out of bed and went outside into the front yard, and he paced back and forth in front of some tin can garbage cans. So he punched one of the garbage cans, and then he hit it harder. And then he started fighting them while screaming at the air. Some of his neighbors came out to see what all the commotion was about. Everyone was tired and confused, because you gotta think, this is late at night, you know what I'm saying? Probably like midnight or 1am, 2am, who knows, right? Someone asked him, what's wrong? He told them that he was mad because he couldn't get a girlfriend, which is obviously, you know, normal. But what wasn't normal was him out there just beating shit out of some trash cans over it. It wasn't that serious, my guy. He eventually calmed down and went back to bed, and so did his neighbors. No girl would love him, spend time with him, or even talk to him. Ah, relatable! Ooh, Sean, I think me and you got more in common. Well, on that situation, the rest of it, no. But maybe he didn't need a living girlfriend. Okay, that's where we uh, differ. I need a living girlfriend, buddy. The older he got, the further apart that he got from women. Now, I can relate to that part. He was interested in his grandmother's funeral home. I'm a little bit interested in funeral homes, but... The smell of embalming fluids, beautiful caskets, and the silence. Yeah. It might have aroused a mix of weird feelings. He came across the bodies in the casket. They were like life-size dolls just waiting for Sean to play with. His imagination ran wild. He slept in the empty caskets. He held the cold hands. He poked the skin. Sometimes he would even fondle their bodies. They were like non-resisting female partners. Oh, God. He developed a necrophilia fantasy, which could be triggered out of fear of rejection. But not sure. I'm not a psychiatrist. He kept his impulses a secret. The dead bodies bled into his thoughts of his own mother, fantasizing about what he could do to her if she was dead be his own life-size Barbie. He didn't tell his thoughts to anyone, including his two friends, nor his mother. He continued on with his life. He would go to the mall with friends, talk about girls, and watch TV. They eventually started drinking and smoking pot together. Sean liked it a little bit more than his friends. He would drive them to private properties for the thrill of trespassing. In 1979, Sean's senior year, his grandfather died. His father was coming home for the funeral. He hasn't been in town for 16 years, and he's been institutionalized 19 times. He was diagnosed with seven different mental conditions. Good God, man. And survived a few suicide attempts. Wow. Once he got there, Sean and him decided to spend some time together. A little awkward at first, but he came back more often, and the two formed a relationship. A year later, when he graduated, he could see both of his parents in the audience cheering him on at the same time. But, you know, good things don't always last long. He was at home resting when he got a call that his father was in the hospital from a hallucinogenic episode from out drinking. Nothing to worry about, son. I might just be here for a while. He asked if he could retrieve his stuff from his hotel at the French Quarter of New Orleans. He went and he came across some pornography photos of men. In the 80s, being gay was still frowned upon. Also, Sean was Catholic, so that probably made him feel like, hey, this is sin. So it made him resent him more, due to not only gay being frowned upon at the time, but his religious views, it probably made him resent his father more. So he retrieved this stuff, and he never wanted to see his father again. And he started to backslide. He went back to his old ways. Later that year, he got arrested for trespassing. He didn't really do much with his life. He didn't even move out of his mother's house or anything. He took some computer classes, but didn't do anything with them. 
Throughout his 20s, he worked unskilled jobs, smoked pot, drank, obsessed over Star Trek. Uh, my 20s, yeah, it's kind of been like that where I worked unskilled jobs and that's about it. Not really smoking pot, drinking, or obsessed over Star Trek. I like Star Wars. Sean wasted 12 years of his life doing nothing. Hey, I only wasted like five years and I freaking hate myself for it. My buddy, he wasted two years and he hates himself for it. So now I feel better knowing that Sean wasted 12 years. So I feel a lot better. In 1992, his mother got a job in Atlanta and was moving out, leaving him behind. She told him that he could continue to stay in the house and that she'd pay the mortgage. Ha! Huh, must be nice! The mid-90s, he was introduced to the internet. He'd watch porn often. His category was dead women, of course. How am I not surprised? So much better than his grandmother's funeral home. <laughs> One night, he went to the next-door neighbor's house and peeked inside. He saw a young woman who lived there. Excited, he moved in for a closer look, and he got caught. Good job. You and Derek really suck at fucking peeking Tom, and you know that, right? He ran back to his house, and the police came knocking at his door. Sean admitted to being in the backyard, but was looking for his cat. Yeah, okay. They were skeptical, but all they could do was arrest him for, you know, some standing traffic violations. He was released a few hours later. He started blaming his mother for everything that was going wrong in his life, including the women part. So, in the middle of the night, he would get up, go to the front yard, and hit the trash cans and curse pretty much her name. He did that a lot. So, in March 1994, a friend brought 31-year-old Sean to a convenience store. The friend introduced him to a woman behind the counter named Terry. She was a tall, blonde, and attractive. No way she'd fall for him. Honestly, I looked up Terry's pictures. She's not really that pretty at all. No no disrespect, Terry, but you're not really that pretty. Even Sean looks a little bit better than her. I know, that's kind of messed up. Terry was going through a bad divorce and was looking for some fun. Well, Sean wasn't really her type when it came to looks, but they had a lot in common. They talked all night. A few days later, he asked her out, and she said yes. So March 20th, 1994, he went out on the prowl. He had no plan, but he circled the assistant living place that's across the street from Terry's work. Wow, congratulations, you're an idiot. He started peeking Tom in again. One curtain was open, and he spotted Ann Bryan. She kept a nice home. Photos of her kids and grandkids around her apartment, Bible on the table. He watched her carefully. She got out of her clothes and got into a hot bath. She sat there and was relaxing. Once she got out, she dried herself off, put her pink nightgown on, and headed to bed. He was aroused. It reminded him of his mother, but damaged like him. He circled to her front door and found it unlocked. Great. He let himself in, and he tiptoed to the bedroom, and he stood there and watched. He was watching her sleep for a while. And it made him happy. Yeah, you and Derek really got a lot in common, don't you? She started to wash herself and relax. Once she got out, she dried herself off, put on her pink nightgown, and headed to bed. He was aroused. It reminded him of his mother, but damaged like him. He circled to the front door and found it unlocked. Great. He let himself in. He tiptoed to the bedroom, and he stood there and watched her. He was watching her sleep for a while, and it made him happy. Yeah, you and Derek really got a lot in common. So at 3 a.m., he was ready. He made his way to the bed and accidentally woke her up. They locked eyes. He got on top of her and tore off her underwear, and she kicked. The kicking, the screaming, the close-up, all of it was terrifying to Sean. This was different. He never experienced this before. He pulled out a knife, and he stabbed her many times. Eventually, the kicking and the screaming stopped. 
He cut her throat so deeply he nearly decapitated her head. All of this for him to play with. Total of 50 stabs, some at her face, breast, and genitals. He disemboweled her as well. He put her head on the floor and legs on the bed, and with her nightgown opened up, showing what he had done. He went home right after, acting like nothing ever happened. When staff members found her the next day, Sean wasn't even thought of as a suspect. The police were shocked. The motive was unclear. Bloody footprints and handprints, but they went nowhere. Man, if they would have had DNA testing and stuff and, you know, all that, maybe they could have caught him. But times were different back then. All possible suspects were eliminated. Only a mile away from the crime scene, the suspect was chilling on the couch. On paper, he had no connection to her. Due to Sean being a loner, the police didn't even know who he was, let alone think that he even did the crime. In 1995, Terry moved into his home. Oh, it must be nice now you have a girl. I don't even have one still, so fuck you, Sean. He didn't tell her about the murder or that he had dark, twisted fantasies. I wouldn't either. His mother didn't know about his violent impulses or necrophilia, so he kept the secrets away from Terry as well. So in 1995 to 1999, he didn't commit any crimes at all. Terry continued to work the graveyard shift at the Circle K while he, want, while he wandered the north side of town where sex workers were at. He wanted someone small and easy to overpower. He took a job as a technician welding with copy machines, using zip ties to bundle up cables. He understood how useful these ties were and how they could pretty much do something. He imagined what a zip tie would be like if it was around a woman's neck. He tested his method on a wooden chair, and it worked, and he called it Objectify. Yeah, like, that's supposed to work, my guy. Okay. Just because you put it around a chair, it's different from a neck. Practicing until ready. January 4th, 1999, while Terry was at work, he grabbed zip ties and a knife and got into his car, riding down North Street. He saw 29-year-old Catherine Hall. He was nervous, but he wanted it badly. He led down his window, held out a $20 bill. When she saw him holding the money, she didn't think twice. She needed the money for drugs. She had years of experience, so she knew which cars to get in and which ones not to get in. Well, that was false. She got in because she obviously thought, you know, this guy doesn't look harmless at all. You know, he probably ain't going to do nothing. So he drove her to an empty field playing music and talking. Once they got there, he paid her for oral sex. She agreed. Once done, he took out his zip tie and put it over her neck and pulled it. It didn't work and she opened the door and ran screaming in the empty field. Panicked, he got out and he chased her and he tackled her to the ground. He beat her and stabbed her. He slit her throat which killed her immediately. Dark and in the middle of nowhere, nobody heard anything. He mutilated her body, paying special attention to her breast, abdominal, and genitals. He placed her in the passenger seat of his car and he went to an all-night car wash. At the car wash, he pulled her body out of the car and left it there on the ground while he took care of the stains. Once finished, he put her body back into the car and he drove around looking for a place to leave her body. God darn, my guy. Damn, like, he really didn't care. Shit. So, he saw a dead-end street. As irony, he dumped her body off, naked, face down, and in the open, right in front of the dead-end sign. So, y'all remember earlier when I said dead-end in the other story, and I said, Sean might like this joke? Now you understand. He went to go meet up with Terry. A hunter found her body. The police once again were stumped. They figured out the body was killed elsewhere. 
Placing the body at the sign, there was a sign as a joke. The investigation went cold. Then Terry wanted to have sex with Sean. He would say that he didn't like it and that he didn't want to do it. She accepted that answer. She was aware of his internet porn habits and she assumed that that's where all his sexual energy was going. Not just any porn, necro porn. She wasn't a fan of him being into internet porn. Reasons? They didn't have sex anymore. And she just wasn't a fan of him sharing it every time with her. She accepted it as who Sean was. For the most part, she didn't care. As long as Sean wasn't violent towards her, she had many encounters with abusive men. One time, she got into a bar fight with the biker to try to protect another woman. And then face to face, she was fighting for her life. Her and the other woman killed the biker. Police deemed it as self-defense. In her wallet, she kept a photo of the dead biker on the floor. She even showed it to Sean. Oh yeah, so she's kind of messed up too. The person she was divorcing was also an abusive man. He attacked her and she cut his arm wide open with a meat cleaver. She wanted to see if Sean would do the same, so she put it to the test. She started an argument with him and slapped him right in the face. And then she waited for his reaction. It brought tears to his eyes and he stomped his foot on the ground and said, Girls don't hit boys and boys don't hit girls. After that, he stormed off. She was happy with the results. Sean might not be abusive to her, but he can't say that for his other victims. So Sean was one day driving through a wealthy neighborhood when he spotted 52-year-old Hardy Schmidt jogging. He was drawn to her and he said, One day, I'm going to kill her. So on May 30th, 1999, he posted up in the same area where he first saw Hardy and waited, hoping to see her again. Well, here she comes. He slammed his car into her and got out and put a zip tie around her neck and pulled it. Once dead, he put her body in the car and he was looking around for witnesses. He got in and drove off. He was driving to a local park and it was 5 a.m. on a Sunday morning, so there was no one around. He took his time removing the clothes and sexually assaulting the body. This was the first time that he ever did necro. Later that day, Sean picked up Terry from work with Hardy in the trunk. Terry was completely clueless. Later that year, November 12th, he picked up 36-year-old sex worker Joyce Williams. He saw her walking on the road in the industrial side of town. Offering her $10 for oral, she agreed and hopped in. He turned the radio on and they were singing along to the music and feeling relaxed. He took her to a remote area. They were having a good time. He strangled her with a zip tie and he brought her body back to the house and he laid it on the kitchen floor. He spent hours mutilating her. He cut off her head and had sex with it. I mean, he did say he went oral. I'm sorry, I'm terrible. He also ate her nipples. Mm, Hershey kisses. Okay, I need to stop. This murder was the first time that he did cannibalism. The only explanation that he ever gave was... I was curious. Killing him gave him power. Before bringing Terry home, he'd clean up everything so Terry didn't suspect a thing. He once said, It's my universe, and I'm God there. I am God! I don't know if he yelled it or not, but yeah. For the next two victims were 52-year-old Lillian Robinson in January of 2000 and Marilyn Neves, or Neves, both sex workers that were picked up, strangled, and dumped in remote areas. He felt like a chess master. Like the, you know, Star Trek reference. You know, his favorite character, Schmock, was a chess master. You get it. When Sean turned on the news in 2001, everyone else was talking about a different serial killer. What? Who? Who the hell are they talking about? They better be talking about me. Someone else was raping and murdering women in the area at a fast rate. The city is in a panic, and the nation was watching. He was fascinated and he kept the news stories on his computer in a file. Part of him was jealous. 
But on May 2003, they arrested Derek Todd Lee, a.k.a. the Baton Rouge Serial Killer. Ah, he terrorized Baton Rouge for five years, so the woman felt safe now. Well, they might have felt safe that Derek is off the streets, but Sean is still here. <laughs> so, Sean took a time, you know, not killing. So, he hasn't killed anyone for the past three years and hasn't had any sex with any dead bodies either. So, on October 9th, 2003, he went to the north side of Baton Rouge... Like many times before, but this time was different. He spotted an old friend that was walking, 45-year-old Johnny Mae Williams. He paid her to clean his house. He knew her kids. They even spent Thanksgiving together once. She struggled with cracking cocaine, though. There had been many moments where she was clean, happy, and healthy, but this time, it seems like she relapsed. Sean said that she looks like death. Yeah, I bet you that turned you on even more, didn't it? (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm terrible. He invited her into the car. She looked malnourished and exhausted, so Sean drove her down a gravel road with a small grassy area with trees. He pulled her out of the car and slammed her head down and on her back. He beat her to death, and once dead, he cut open the back of her legs and cut off her hands. He cut off her hands? Who does he think he is? Tomo's Miyazaki? Okay, I need to stop. He put her back in the car and drove deep into the woods and left her there. He posed her and took photos of her nude body and left. A week went by... And a young boy found her looking for his dog. Well, at least he was actually looking for his dog, unlike Sean that was like, I'm looking for my cat in the back of the neighbor's yard. (laughs) After her body was found, Sean followed closely. Scanning the internet, he came up to an article that showed the photo of her body. So excited that he showed the photo to Terry. But Terry, why didn't you? (sighs) Lord, Terry, what is wrong with you, girl? That's a big red flag. Police had no leads nor suspects, so February 26, 2004, he lured Donna Bennett Johnston into his car, giving her cash for oral sex. It took her to a remote location and strangled her and mutilated her body, cut off and ate her nipples. Once finished, he took photos with his digital camera and left her body in an abandoned area near a canal. After Derek, they felt like they were safe, but the police just realized that they're dealing with another serial killer they formed another task group with dna testing now available they link all the crimes together that night sean killed donna the ground was soft due to the rain that was happening days before when in the woods he left tire tracks behind only 60 percent of people in baton rouge has those tires so they knocked on all the owners doors and asked for dna samples sean was number 26 on the list two detectives knocked on sean's door They told him that they were investigating a recent murder and they had some questions for him. He chatted with them for a while and let them swab his mouth. He admitted to knowing Johnny May and also admitted to driving on Ben-Hur Road where they found Donna's body. They asked him to go to the police station for further questioning because he fucking told too much already. He didn't resist and he went along with it, probably feeling invincible or like, oh, they're never going to suspect me. His surprise detectives, but... Then they made sure that he was the one. So they were a little surprised at first, but they're like, yo, this has got to be the guy. They asked if there would be any reason that they might find blood in this car. And he thought about it, and he said, Terry once menstruated on the passenger seat. (laughs) She left so much blood, it looked like a massacre. (laughs) I mean, they're used to people making up excuses or lies, but this was weird as hell. They asked, would there be any reason why there would be blood in the backseat of your car? 
He was thinking about it again. He was like, hmm, well, Terry was menstruating. The window was down, so some of the blood might have blown to the back seat. Oh, my goodness. Detectives let him go home. They actually sent off his, you know, DNA to a lab, and they were waiting for the labs to come back first before they decided to do anything else. The next several hours, they set up surveillance cameras around his house. If he tried to leave, they wanted to know. He never left. And when he got home, he told Terry everything was fine and that the police questioned him, and then they let him go. Nothing to worry about. They had dinner together. They got in bed together at the same time, which was a very rare occasion. And, you know, falling asleep in each other's arms. Oh, how sweet. It's like he knew something was about to happen. After 1 a.m., they were awakened by a boom. It was a SWAT team kicking in the door. They yanked them both out of the bed and handcuffed Sean. Terry asked, what is going on? One of the officers says, don't you know? You're living with a serial killer. At first, Terry laughed in his face. <laughs> she thought they had the wrong house. But once the detective reassured her that they didn't, her stomach dropped. She looked at Sean right in his eyes. And he had this half grin on his face. And he says, it is true. He finally was the one hiding behind his kills, nor his darkest desires. No separation from Sean the nerd and Sean the killer. It was just Sean. After his arrest, he found lawyers to represent him. They argued that there was an insane person that the time of the killings happened. Yeah, so he was insane when the killings were happening. They gave him a PET scans and MRIs. It showed he had a deformed uh, Amdoria, A-M-Y-G-D-A-L-A. Don't know what that is. It's an almond portion of the brain that's associated with emotions. Okay. So people who have this problem have a hard time with their emotions and other people's emotions as well, like reading them and trying to process them, especially fear. A psychiatrist said that it could be something from childhood, like head trauma, and he did tell the psychiatrist that he suffered many head injuries as a child. Did you suffer as many as Bobby Lee Long <laughs> or Bobby Joe Long? God, that dude had a head injury every five seconds. No one can verify any of his claims. The prosecutions push back against his claims. They don't think that he's insane and that he should be held responsible for his actions. I agree. The jury found him guilty and he was sentenced to life in prison for it. So here's some things about Sean. So the night that Sean got arrested, instead of being on his computer like he always is and Terry's watching TV, he decided to join her and instead... So, for the most part, Terry was saying that he's always on his computer every night and that I'm just sitting there watching TV. So, when he came over there and sat and started watching TV with her for the first time, she asked him, What did you do? He said, I want to spend time with my honey bun. And they ate popcorn together and watched TV. Something must be wrong. You never go to bed the same time as I do, she said. Nope, just want to spend time with you. So, he knew something was about to happen. The detectives sat listening to Gills proudly describe the grotesque details of each of the murders. At times he would laugh and joke as he described how he cut off the arm of one of his victims and consumed the flesh of another, raped the corpses of others, and masturbated with the severe no severed body parts of his victims. Oh, that's kind of gross, y'all. After Gillis was arrested, they searched his home and turned up 45 digital images on his computers of the mutilated body of Donna Johnston. During that time that Gillis remained in jail awaiting his trial, he exchanged letters with Tommy Perida, 
a friend of the victim, Donna Johnston. In the letters, he described the murder of her friend and for the first time even shown a glimpse of remorse. He wrote, and I quote, She was so drunk, it only took about a minute and a half to scub to unconsciousness and then death. Honestly, her last words were, I can't breathe. I still puzzle over the postmortem dismemberment and cutting. There must be something deep in my subconscious that really needs that kind of macabre action. So the lady actually died of AIDS not long after receiving the letters, but she did, however, have the opportunity before dying to give all the letters to the police. They're trying to also charge him with Lillian Robinson's murder. Alright, so I try to keep it a secret, you guys, because this guy, Sean, is actually called the other Baton Rouge killer. See, I was going to do his story first and then do Derek's, but then I'm like, well, this one seems like it ties in better if I do Derek first. So Derek wasn't just killing in Baton Rouge. Like I said, he also killed in Zachary, and I think he killed in that other area too, you know. But this guy strictly was Baton Rouge. But there was times where it said Baton Rouge. Like uh, his father coming home. He hasn't been in Baton Rouge for 16 years. That's why I said in town. Because I wanted to be a surprise. You know, that's why I didn't say their nicknames in the beginning. You know, because I thought it would be interesting to be like, oh, you know, this ties into this. And I thought it would be shocking to be like tell, tell Derek's story and then be like, but while Sean was killing, there was another serial killer. <gasps> Who? It made, you know, the town shake and, you know, it made national news. It was Derek Todd Lee. So what I'm thinking now, so when Derek was on the news, so when Derek was in Atlanta, or, you know, maybe before, when before the cops even found out it was Derek, is that when Sean noticed or did Sean see when they put it on the news? Like when Derek's, you know, wife saw Derek's name and picture on the news. Is that the same time that Sean saw it? Or was it when they put it on national news when they were like, we have a serial killer on the loose and his name is the Baton Rouge serial killer? I wonder if that's when Sean saw it. So he kind of laid low for a while because he wanted the attention. He didn't want to like try to compete with Derek, right? But they have a lot in common. They both suck at peeping. They both pretty much go after the same type of women. The thing with Sean is he's more like mentally unstable. Uh, he's into necrophilia. He did decapitate a lady, you know, and then pretty much scold fucked her is what we call it nowadays. So, yeah, they're both got their problems, but I think Sean is a little bit more disturbed. This is something that I did not understand I'm not trying to say anything, but why did Derek get the death penalty, but Sean didn't? Yes, Derek might have stabbed Charlotte like 83 times with a screwdriver, but Sean's over here like decapitating a lady's head and like skull fucking it. You know, he's mutilating these women's poor bodies and stabbing not only the face, the groin, and the breast. Like, he's just like cutting everything. So why didn't he get the death penalty? Also, he's doing necrophilia. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's a lot more with Sean than it is with Derek. I mean, they both deserve the death penalty, don't get me wrong, but it's just weird how Sean didn't get it, and he was killing around the same time Derek was, maybe a little bit before. 
I don't want to say it's because he's white and Derek's black. I don't want to say that because I don't want him to make it a race thing. But I do think it's kind of weird that Sean didn't get it, but Derek did. You know what I'm saying? Like, Derek only got, like, petty crimes. Sean's over here, you know, a little bit different. Like, it just seemed a little odd to me. I just thought it was weird, you know, that he would get the death penalty, but, you know, homeboy Sean didn't. So, that's something to think about. But Derek actually had anywhere from 7 to 11 kills, 4 attempted, 3 assault, and 1 stalking. So, yeah, he actually got charged with 2 counts of murder, 2 counts of robbery, 1 count of vandalism, 7 counts of criminal trespassing. Sean got that too, the trespassing. 2 counts of disturbing the peace, 7 counts of burglary, 1 count of resisting arrest. But I thought they said he didn't even resist the arrest when they came and got him in Atlanta. Seven counts of warriorism, pretty much peaking Tom. One count of a DUI. Ooh, when did that happen? One count of stalking, one count of unlawful entry, and one count of battery. So that was his charges. So what did Sean actually get charged with? That's what I want to know. So he was charged with three counts of first-degree murder and three counts of real ritualistic acts and the murder of Catherine Hall and Joni, Johnny May Williams. So that's all he got was three counts of first degree murder and three counts of ritualism acts. I don't even know what that means. I have to look that up. I really, for the purpose of this subsection, ritual acts means those act undertaken as part of a ceremony, rite, initiation, observation, observation, performance, or practice that results in or are intended to result in a mutilation, dismemberment, torture, abuse, or sacrifice of animals. In this case, it wasn't animals. It was actually humans. Another thing is, these guys didn't actually show any signs of murdering animals. It didn't say at all that either one of these guys were killing animals. So I'm a little bit, like, shocked. I'm like, hmm. You know, Derek, you know, they should have addressed the peeping Tom thing. And, you know, eventually he grew up and that started getting worse. It started getting a whole lot worse. Uh, Sean, I think he was just screwed from the beginning, not only from the head trauma, but the trauma that his father probably put him through, especially as a baby when his mama left him in the fucking room by themselves. And also, you know, suffering from the illnesses that he has. I mean, if his dad has seven mental illnesses, God forbid, Sean has to at least have to have like half of those. You know what I'm saying? His father's been institutionalized like, what, 19 times? So, yeah. Well, that's the end of the Baton Rouge serial killer, Derek Todd Lee, and the other Baton Rouge serial killer, Sean Vince Gillis. Imagine being called the other Baton Rouge serial killer. Like, that's kind of fucked up. You don't even get your own name. <laughs> All right. I am uploading this today. I'm so sorry that it's not uploading on Saturday. I am going to be uploading the next one Saturday. It's just been very chaotic. I know this is Monday and I'm uploading it now, but I love you guys. Y'all stay safe and I will catch you in the next episode. Stay safe and make sure to lock your doors. You don't want to be like these victims. They didn't lock their freaking doors or know how to use curtains. So learn from their mistakes. Love you guys.